Thank you, Andrew and choir. Let's pause again in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we turn to contemplate your word that your voice would be heard, that our hearts would rejoice, that we would respond in obedient living to seek your glory alone. Bless this time we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. The residents of the Decapolis were enraged at the news brought to them by the swineherders. A significant portion of the community's assets had been stripped away in one moment when a great herd of pigs had inexplicably turned and rushed into the lake to their death. They didn't know exactly what was going on, but they presumed this must have something to do with the arrival of the notorious prophet from the other side of the lake. He couldn't be allowed to get away with this. He would have to pay for this crime against their community. The mid-morning air was still refreshingly clear as they made their way to the lakeshore confrontation. The storm of the night before had brightened the day. And they were breathing that air deeply as they rushed to meet with this prophet. Mark 5.15 records what happens next. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. One moment they were incensed. In the very next moment they are in awe. And what had caused this sudden transformation in their spirits? Let me suggest to you that there were two factors. One, in part, they encountered the awful price of salvation. And they encountered the amazing power of transformation. They begged Jesus to leave their region. They had to insulate themselves from the disquieting effects Of this life transforming power. And Jesus with his disciples. Got back into their boat. And prepared to cross the lake. But not before commissioning. The one time demoniac legion. To be the bearer of the gospel of grace. This would be a ministry that would bear much fruit. How do I know that? Because it's impossible to refute the evidence of such a transformed life. This man was a trophy of grace. We're not in Mark, we're in Galatians. Let's get back there. And the the book of Galatians with its six chapters can be reasonably neatly divided into three sections. Two chapters each. Chapters one and two, they're Paul defends the gospel. Chapters 3 and 4, he explains the gospel. And chapters 5 and 6, he applies the gospel. So we're right in the middle of that first section, the start of chapter 2. And we see Paul sharing autobiographical details as he continues to make this case in defense of his message and his ministry. 
And through an infusion of amazing grace, God had sought and saved Paul, called and commissioned Paul, and sent and sustained him in this work to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And that work was by now well underway as we look at verses 1 and 2 in there read. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. As we make our way through this uh, little section of 10 verses, I want to do so under four headings. To see one man, two mindsets, one message, two missions. This is a sound engineer's sermon structure. Leave you to work that out for yourself. One man. One man. Who is the one man? The one man is Titus. Who is Titus? Well, we don't know a great deal about him, but primarily for our understanding this morning, all we need to know is that he is a trophy of grace. Now, it seems very likely that Titus was a Gentile convert under the ministry of Paul, probably in the city of Antioch. He served Paul, both as a traveling companion on his missionary journeys and as a a sort of firefighter, fixed emissary who would run to sort out problems in the churches at the apostles' direction. And we, Presbyterians, know him best because of the work that he was sent to do in Crete, that we read off in Titus chapter 1 and verse 4, that he was sent by Paul to establish in every city or in every congregation presbyters, elders. To make sure the church was thoroughly Presbyterian from the beginning. And Titus' presence on this occasion at the uh, headquarters of the Christian church in Jerusalem was vitally important. Now forgive me if this is an unhelpful picture. But when I imagine this, I I can't help but go to Dragon's Den imagery. Some of you have watched Dragon's Den. And I picture Paul standing before James and Peter and John. And he's making his case for the authenticity of the gospel that he preached. And when it came to those hard questions and people saying, well, how do you know your ministry is going to be effective? If I can switch TV analogy to Blue Peter. Paul would look at Titus and say, here's one I made earlier. You need evidence. You require proof. Meet Titus. And he will confirm to you what God has done in his heart through the message that I have proclaimed. Titus is the visual aid. Titus is the incontrovertible proof that through Paul's message, God was at work to bring new and eternal life into the hearts of the Gentiles. It is impossible to refute the evidence of such a transformed life. And this man who stood before them was a trophy of grace. Now please note that this one man did not represent just a convert under Paul's ministry. He wasn't just like a, a notch on Paul's Bible. No, he, he was much, much more than that. He was a disciple and he was more than a disciple because he was a disciple making disciples. 
And if Paul had traveled around Asia Minor and Eastern Europe only making converts, the church would never have spread. It would never have grown. It would never be said of him as it later was that this man had turned the world upside down. How was that possible? It was possible because by the grace of God and the power of the gospel, Paul worked to see one man like Titus become a mission-motivated disciple-making disciple. The gospel spread uncontrollably because where there was once Paul, then there were Paul and Titus, both proclaiming the same message, both engaged in the same work. And we do watch and we worry about the spread of the coronavirus. But in spite of every attempt at quarantine, we see it spreading globally. It only takes one who is a carrier to be in contact with someone else for it to be passed on. And so the gospel spread to the hearts of those who had been transformed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It inevitably was passed on once you had gained it, once you had been gifted it by God, then there was no way it couldn't transform the lives of others around you. It could not be resisted because it was the power of God to salvation. One man, but, but two mindsets, two mindsets, verses three to five. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In Paul's meeting with the church leaders in Jerusalem things were going very smoothly. And then all of a sudden there was a major bump in the road. J.B. Phillips in his New Testament uh, translation describes these interlopers as those who wormed their way into our meeting. They were an influential group. They came from a a background of, of being Pharisees. And they were attempting to cause the Gentile Christians to bear the yoke of the ceremonial law. And Paul wants us all to understand that the purposes of the ceremonial law, including circumcision and the sacrificial system, were all fulfilled by Christ at Calvary. Now please understand, the gospel does not set aside the law. Rather, it dismisses it as a means to our salvation. But the preaching of the gospel must be matched by the practice of the gospel. And the elements of the moral law are still to be adhered to by Christians. Do not lie, do not steal, do not murder. We keep these things not as a means of making ourselves right with God. Not as self-justification. But this law, now written on our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit, must enable us to delight in doing this. God empowers us to live a holy life according to His Word. And we're going to have to keep coming back to this idea as we journey through our study of this letter. But for now, let's note that the truth of the gospel here was at stake. The flourishing of the Christian church throughout the whole world was at stake. Your salvation was at stake in these very moments in Jerusalem. 
And Paul would not budge an inch. You can imagine someone coming to Paul up behind him saying, you know, Paul, if we could just get over this Titus thing. Sure, have, have Titus circumcised and who'll know it? It'll, it'll keep these Jerusalem boys happy. And then you go back out into the wider world, into the Gentile cities. Well, they'll know nothing about it. Paul would get very angry about this assault on the gospel message. It was not to do with him, not for the preservation of his own honor. But because when you deny the truth of the gospel, you divest Christ of his glory. When you add any human stipulations, you rob the gospel of its purity and its power. In Mark's gospel, chapter 7, verses 68, Jesus challenges the teaching of the Pharisees of that day. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You see, Jesus explains to us that there is an inevitable consequence of heading out on this pathway. That whenever... Additional man-made commandments are added to what's required of God's people. That the truth, God's central issues are pushed to the side. Because these man-made rules have to be defended at all costs. Because if we don't stick up for them, who will? God won't. And the church has, in every generation, always had to bend more out of shape, contorted and twisted as they seek to defend that, that, that what they believe, which is contrary to God's word. don't want to take time to take examples, but that's always been the case. Man-made rules need so much more defense because God is not in them. And Paul staunchly refuses to compromise. He will not allow the rules of man To guide his thinking. And that means that that Titus remains the perfect example of the errors on either side. He he speaks a clear message to Jewish believers. The Jewish mindset. He's a true believer. But he remains uncircumcised. He's saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And he is fully saved. Even though there is no additional cutting of his flesh. He speaks to the Jewish mindset of the work of God through the gospel. And he speaks to those from a Gentile mindset. Those who are coming under increasing pressure from these wandering Pharisee preachers. They were going around the new churches saying, oh yes, but it's good you have Paul's stuff, but you need so much more. And and Titus could go before him and say, listen, I have been at the very heart of the church. I've been to Jerusalem. I've met the leaders. uh, And they believe me to be a brother. But they don't ask me to comply with the demands of the ceremonial law. They averred the genuineness of his conversion. The finished work of Jesus Christ in his life. They confirmed their belief that there was circumcision of his heart. That did not require circumcision of his flesh. One man to address two mindsets. And thirdly, one message. Again, let's go back to verse 2. I went up because of a revelation 
I'm set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Many years ago, I would spend a a good portion of of some of my days as a civil engineer out running around the country surveying. It was not the... uh, high-tech computer, laser, satellite, uh, wizardry of today. And back then, the surveyor's best friend was a benchmark. hope you know what a benchmark is. That little arrowhead symbol securely chiseled into the stonework of some great building. And it would provide a sure standard of elevation against which you could compare your figures your maps, and then guard against error in your calculations. And here in this text, we find Paul coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to compare his message with the benchmark message of the preaching of the gospel. Now, Paul was not uncertain in any way that he was preaching the truth. Paul was sure that he was passing on what Jesus had first given to him. But he had no interest in con- continuing his, his mission, his ministry, if it was being undermined. People were saying that he no longer proclaimed the truth of Jesus. And I wonder, can you conceive of how monumental this encounter must have been? Think of all those who were present in this little meeting. Heading up the whole thing, what was James the brother of Jesus. He made his contribution to the New Testament. Wasn't highly regarded by Martin Luther, who called it a straw epistle, but he is in there. Peter could talk about how he has written two letters that are now in our scriptures. And it's almost certain that Peter contributed hugely to the writing of Mark's gospel. Mark's account were Peter's memoirs. And John could speak of his three letters. His beautiful gospel. His enigmatic revelations. But Paul exceeded them all. Even combined he had written more. His 13 epistles. So here were four men who contributed 22 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And that must have been quite a small group Bible study to be party to. And Paul notes in verse 6. They added nothing to me. For these four men together, there was this clear, consistent message coming through the lips, the lives, and the letters that they proclaimed. The gospel of Christ. And there was a unity of purpose, but there was a diversity of practice. There was one message, but there were two missions. Verses 7 to 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the, un, to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me, That we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
Paul and Barnabas, they had a mission. It was to bring the good news of Jesus to the Gentile world. James, Peter, and John, and we keep it in that order, not Peter, James, and John, as we see in the Gospels. But that James died early in the first waves of persecution. This is James, the, the, the brother of our Lord. They would bear the message to the Jews. And now there are countless missions across the world. And if you are a child of God this morning, let me remind you that by an infusion of His grace, God has sought you and saved you. But not yet. He has called you and equipped you and He sends you and will sustain you into this world. He wants you to speak and to live and to work for the extension of his kingdom and the honor of his name through the saving of precious souls. And to each believer here this morning, he has given you the most compelling piece of evidence that there can ever be. The best tool that you could ever have. Something that can never be taken from you began our service, those words that Paul wrote to young Timothy, when he was able to declare in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Please understand this and hear it well. That the word of God, applied by the spirit of God, to the heart of the believer, should cause them to understand that they are the foremost sinner they know. If you think there are bigger sinners in this room than you, there's something amiss. And this realization of our own unworthiness must stir us with Paul to go on into verse 16 of 1 Timothy 1. Paul says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See what he says there? He says, I I received this mercy. Why? That I might be An example. An example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It is impossible to refute the evidence of a transformed life. This man, Paul, was a trophy of grace. And you, child of God, are a trophy of grace. The gospel will always come under attack from outside the church, but particularly from inside the church. It will always have those who seek to modify it for human preferences. We must not yield submission to their pressures. But rather we must proclaim its truth to the very ends of the earth and begin by saying, I know I believe because it changed me. This morning, once again, we come to the Lord's table and we come with fresh eyes. For here we see the awful cost 
of salvation. And here we share again anew the amazing power of transformation. Let's pray together.